1 John 3, 1 through 18. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed, and in truth, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you please join with me in prayer? Father, we again uh, pause, um, having just heard your word and wanting to hear it well, uh, to recognize again that this is not um, something we do on our own, we are dependent upon you uh, to truly hear these words that give life. And so we again ask, Lord, that you would please open our minds, open our hearts, renew, shape us. Help us to become the people that you have created us to be. That you would be glorified and that we would be strengthened. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, if you were with us last week, maybe you, I hope at least, will remember that there's kind of a simple point, and that is that as we face life, as we face the world around us, there can be a couple of different postures that we face it with. One of them is arms wide open, welcoming, vulnerable, loving, and the other one is more protective, out of fear. And I said that as we grow older and as we experience pain, this more and more becomes the common way that we face the world. We protect ourselves. But when we come to understand who God is, we realize that God is like this towards us, that he extends his love even to the point of Christ dying on the cross for us. And as we see that, that opens our arms again and teaches us to love the world, to love even our enemies. In some ways, this morning's sermon is really just kind of like the second half of that. And I just want to build on what we said last week with this simple point. And the point is that you are incredibly gifted at loving. I know that probably sounds like, I don't know, flattery or me trying to kind of give an ego boost. But I want to tell you that if you here are, are someone who has placed your faith in Christ, you are incredibly gifted in loving. And that's not just my opinion. That is what the Bible teaches you. And I want us to not only think about this, but to think about a couple of implications of this. But I realize that to get to that, first, I need to convince you that that's true because it doesn't sound right to many of you. And so that's what I want to do with the first part of this sermon. And if you'll just bear with me, it will take a few minutes, but I hope to convince you by the time I'm done. So, so let's look at the passage that was just read. It's a passage that has a lot, and we're not going to be able to cover anything, everything in it. But I want to start with just the very opening command that we see. If you have your bulletins open, you'll see the very first thing is a command to see, to look, to pay attention to. And what is it that we're supposed to look at and pay attention to? Look at the kind of love the Father has given to us. Now that seems a little strange, what kind of love? But if you think about it, there are different kinds of love, aren't there? I mean... One kind of love is maybe the love that we have towards, I don't know, chocolate cake, or that Michael has towards his Apple products. That's a different kind of love, presumably, than, say, the love that we have towards siblings. And yet, that still is a different kind of love than, say, romantic love. If someone is on a date and they say, I love you like a sister, you know that that date is not going well. It's a different kind of love. We have different kinds of love. So what kind of love has the Father given to us? That's what we're supposed to pay attention to. And the answer is, it is the kind of love that makes us into children of God. Right? That's what it says. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. or And so we are, I think is what it says here. Now, the Bible, when it speaks of us being children of God, uses kind of two different, it speaks of it in two different ways. Sometimes when it's using this metaphor, it's speaking primarily about a relationship. You, if you are a follower of Christ, have been adopted 
You know that God is your father, that he treats you like a son or a daughter. You are secure, you are loved. That is one aspect of that metaphor of of sonship or being children of God. But sometimes the focus is not as much on relationship, but on resemblance. It was common in biblical times, if you were wanting to describe someone, to say they were a son of something. So, so Jesus, for example, calls James and John the sons of thunder. And presumably that's not about a relationship they have to storms. It's, it's talking about how they have a stormy disposition. It's describing them. Or perhaps you noticed last week when we were looking at what Jesus was talking about when he talked about calling, when he called us to love our enemies, he said, if you do this, you will be sons of your father. He's not saying that suddenly this will magically make you into children of God. He's saying when we love our enemies, then we're showing our family resemblance. See, that's another aspect. When the Bible speaks of us being children of God, it can sometimes speak about how we look like God or we are like God. And that's the sense that's being used here in these verses. That we should be called children of God, and so we are. John's speaking about something that is true of us, a way that we resemble God. And and if you need any further evidence of that, all you need to do is jump down to verse 9. When when John says, no one who is born of God, now even that indicates what he's talking about. To be born of God, he's not just talking about adoption, he's talking about something that has happened to you, that you have experienced some sort of change, some sort of rebirth. No one who is born of God, he says, makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Do you hear that emphasis? The emphasis is on, as a child of God, we resemble our father. Now, I realize that verse right there that I just read raises some questions. In fact, the entire paragraph Perhaps you were feeling a little uncomfortable about it because it raises questions, doesn't it? You have just a few verses earlier in verse 6. John writes, No one who abides in him, that is in Jesus, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Christ or known him. I mean, that's a troubling verse, at least at first glance, isn't it? Because... Most of us, if we're honest, go, whoa, wait, I mean, I, I sin. So is this saying that I'm not a Christian? Now, this is one of the reasons why it is so important when we're trying to understand anything in the Bible that we don't just take something apart from the context, but we read the whole idea together. Because if you just go back a couple of chapters, in chapter 1, John very clearly says, anyone who says he has no sin is a liar, and the truth is not in him. In other words, John knows that as long as Christ has not yet returned, as long as we're still in this life, we will still continue to sin, and to deny that is actually to be deceiving ourselves and trying to deceive others. He's not talking about perfection here. So then what is he talking about? Well, John is saying that when we truly come to experience the love of God, When we truly come to realize what it means that Jesus has died for us, something happens to us. We're changed. The change, in fact, is so dramatic that it's described as a new birth. 
The trajectory of our souls is different. We are now being guided by a different passion. The theologian John Calvin says there is a new prevailing principle, that is, a new desire that guides us. Now, in a way that wasn't true before, we have a deeper desire to do what is right and to love and please God. And we have a different relationship with sin. While we sin, we grieve over our sin. We seek to repent of it, even though we continue to fail. That's what verse 9 is talking about, this new birth, this significant change. It's saying if you are a child of God, if you've been born of him, then sin is no longer the trajectory of your soul. Why? Well, because John says, God's seed abides in you. To put it in maybe modern terms, the genetic material, the DNA of God, is now spiritually in your soul. His spirit is at work within you, now giving you a new life, a new direction to your heart. When the Spirit comes, you cannot remain the same. You cannot continue to remain content with sin. You are wanting to change. You are grieving over sin. There is a new trajectory of repentance. That's what John is saying in these paragraphs. And so here's what brings us back to the point that I made at the beginning that I say I want to convince you of. What is that new trajectory? Where are we heading now if it's away from sin? The answer is, it's a trajectory of love. Verse 10 tells us that the sign that distinguishes the child of God is that they now are seeking to practice righteousness. And then it specifically speaks of how those who are children of God love their brother. You hear that? It's love. That is the new trajectory of our heart. Verse 14 underlines this. John says, We know that we have passed out of death into life. That's just another way of speaking of being born again. This this inner transformation. We have passed out of death into life because why? We love the brothers. Do you see that we know that we are children, the thing that is a sign of the fact that we are children of God is that we love. Look at what kind of love the Father has given to us. What kind of love is that? It's a love that transforms us, a love that, that rebirths us, that makes us into children of God. It is a love that gives us the power to love. That's what John is saying here, that you now, as a follower of Jesus, have been given the power to love with the very love that God has loved you. You are incredibly gifted at loving. Do you believe me? Because I realize this feels counterintuitive. Well, you're going to have to ask the question, do you believe the Bible? Because that's here what Scripture is saying. I think part of the reason it's counterintuitive is just because we're so aware of our own failings, 
I mean, don't we every week, we will, after this sermon, confess our sins, and, and that's appropriate. I mean, the Lord's Prayer says that every time we're praying, you know, like there's this element that it tells us to say, forgive us our sins. And that's right, because as long as we're in this world, we are still crooked because of sin. We're still not who we should be. But here's what I want you to understand. Though we sin, though that's true of us, that is not you. It's a little bit like the the Snickers commercials. Maybe you've seen these. I saw this, you know, you saw that in the Super Bowl a couple of years ago where, you know, you have all these guys playing backyard football and then strangely enough, you see this 90-year-old Betty White going out for, you know, like she's just like stumbling around. She can't catch anything. She comes back to the huddle like, dude, why are you acting like Betty White? And then, you know, of course, gives her a Snickers and then she eats it and suddenly she's back to her normal, actually his normal self, a 20-something-year-old guy. And then the punchline is, you're not you when you're hungry. Well, we are not us. You are not you when you are sinning. Because you're children of God. You're not you when you are being selfish and prideful and fearful. Now, don't get me wrong. All of us have it. That's a part of the way that we live as long as Christ doesn't return, as long as we're in this world. But we need to know that isn't you. Do you know who you are? You are someone in Christ who is humble, a person of integrity, and someone who above all else is loving. And I say that because you have the very Spirit of God in you. God himself is your Father. Jesus is your older brother. This is your real identity. You are incredibly gifted and loving. And not only is it your identity now, it's more and more who you're going to be. Did you catch this in verse 2? It said, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we shall be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him. That's like Jesus, because we shall see him as he is. The very character of Jesus, his lovingness, his gentleness, his wisdom, that is going to be who you are in completeness when Jesus returns. That is you. You are gifted and loving. Now, let me say, it's going to look different for each of us. Some of us will be loving in our extroverted fashion, and we're just going to be hugs all around and super welcoming because that's us. Others of us cringe at that very thought, but that doesn't make us any less loving. We're the people who, behind the scenes, are, are faithfully trying to serve and trying to help. We all love differently. But if you are in Christ, that is where your giftedness is. You are gifted more than anything else in loving. We just don't always realize it. And that's actually why I want to be focusing. I want to convince you of this because if we can see this, if we can understand that this is who I am because I am a child of God, this is the way that God has loved me. He has made me into someone who loves. That is going to have a couple really significant implications. One of them is it directs the way that we live. 
Now, when I was in school, I remember there sometimes, especially if I was in older elementary school, that you know we'd be acting up, maybe throwing stuff around at each other, and the teacher would be like, "Act your age." Or, or maybe you have had a situation where a friend of yours is acting wrongly, and you you feel the need to confront them, and you say, "Dude, this isn't you." You know, when we're doing that, we're, we're trying to call people back to who they really are. You know, don't lose yourself. The person you are is not that. Do you know, John does the very same thing in this passage. After he says, this is who you are. Look, you know, the very last verse, in verse 18, do you notice he calls them little children? Now, that's interesting, you know, that little children idea, you know, you are children of God, but you're kind of still pipsqueaks, you're still growing, but this is who you are. Little children, let's not love just in words. Let's not talk about it. That's not who you are. It's time to become the people you really are. Let's love in deed and in truth. John is calling these people back to their identity as children of God, and so also he would be calling us. Because that's who we are, and we know when we know who we are, that directs how we live. John, God says to us, don't, don't just talk about love. Be who you are. Love in action. And specifically, he calls us to begin where love is hardest. We've been talking about loving the world, and that is definitely our calling. But do you notice where John says we need to begin? Again and again in these verses, he tells us that we need to begin with the people closest to us. If we love our brother, he says. If we love within our family, or within our church family. Because here's the thing. Family is really the place that we learn to love, isn't it? Family is where we're no longer trying to get people to like us, no longer trying to prove ourselves, because everyone knows in our family who we are. They see our warts, and we see their warts, and that's really where love starts happening. And it's hard. Look, I know, I know you. I know that for many, if not all of you, you are in difficult relationships with family members. Maybe it's your spouse, or maybe it's a parent or a child, maybe it's someone in your extended family. I can say that with confidence, even if I don't know your particular story, because I know something. That is that relationships between two sinful people, when they really try to get together, is always hard. And I realize for some of you it's excruciating. But, but you need to understand that if you are in Christ, you are far more capable at love than you realize. And I'm not trying to say that lightly. I'm just trying to say, don't lose yourself. You are a person who has the ability to love. And even if someone is wronging you, and they may be, you don't need to lose the fact that you still can love them. And not just think about, but actually in, in word and in action. Because that's who you are. Because you're a child of God. And let me say, when we, when we start with that, when we start with the people closest to us and learn to love them, it doesn't stop there. 
Do you know what I found? When families are really good at loving each other, they, that love kind of wells up and overflows beyond, and you see that family welcoming other people into their homes. And when a church is really good at loving each other, it doesn't stop there, but they welcome other people into it because love has a way of overflowing. That's what we are called to be because that's who we already are, and that needs to guide us. But not only does this awareness that we are gifted and loving direct our actions, it also has this tremendous potential to inspire us as to what we can be. You notice verse 3, it says, Anyone who has this, the one who has this hope purifies himself. Now, when I was in fourth grade, our school was part of a, um, uh, a competition through a number of different schools uh, called the Fine Arts Festival. And most of that was competition about, like, you know, music instruments or singing, and I couldn't do either of those. But they had one thing that I felt like I could do, and that was interpretive reading, which is just a fancy way of saying reading a story out loud. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do that. And so I worked, I got a section from Charlotte's Web, and I worked on it over time, and then I entered the competition, and I won. So I am the 1984 Elementary School New England Fine Arts Festival champion at interpretive reading. <laughs> now I realize that seems like a small thing to you, and of course it is, but I'll tell you for me, it was significant. Because in that moment when I was in front of people and doing this after I put so much work into it, I felt something. I realized, you know what? pretty good at this. And so, of course, fifth grade comes around, and I work hard with another interpretive reading, and then at high school, when there's a speech, I put a little extra effort into it, because I think I could probably do an okay job. When I'm in college, I take some communications class. And you know where this is going. When you realize that you are gifted in something, and that you have the potential to be good, that motivates you to get better, doesn't it? I mean, how many of you had that story where someone told you when you were a kid or at some point, hey, you're pretty good at this sport or music or math or whatever it is, and that made you go, I want to get better at it? Well, you are gifted in love. And you have the capacity, the capacity to be a world-class lover of people. Because the single greatest loving person is sharing his ability to love with you and showing you how to love. You and I can truly become great at this, not in our own strength, but we have that gift to truly be someone who loves well. Doesn't that motivate you to want to get better at it? You know what would be awesome? If we began in this church a love training movement. If we work together saying we want to, to, to nourish that gift that is within us so that we can grow in our ability to love and be a world-class loving church. Because here's the thing, you're not going to be trained to do that anywhere else. Right? Think about the world. There is nothing right now in the world, no major forces going on that are meant to shape us to love better. Work doesn't do that. Work encourages you to be efficient and productive. Not really loving. You know, Facebook, you know, you get lots of likes, but it's not for being loving, it's just for 
appearing to be loving or appearing to be clever or interesting. So it encourages you to do that. Ads encourage you to fulfill whatever your desires are. Think about it. You have so many things shaping you in this world, and none of them are seeking to nourish and develop that gift of love. So that's what we need to do together, to be training ourselves together with each other, to be training each other so that we can grow and become the lovers that we were created to be. Now, what would that look like if we really took seriously we want to grow in love? Well, John gives us some pretty clear direction. Just think of where we started. Consider or know or see the kind of love with which God has loved us that we should become children of God. It's the love of God that enables us to love, right? And that's what we see again and again. It's like this different refrain. Verse 2 says that we will be like him when, when we see him. Or verse 6 says that our abiding in Christ, our knowing and seeing Christ, is what makes us who we should be as, as people who are righteous and love. Again and again throughout this passage, there is this understanding that the more connected we are to Jesus, the more we understand the hope that we have, the more that we understand the way that we are loved by him, the more that gives us the capacity to love others. And so training ourselves comes in abiding in Christ and working to so absorb the reality of how we have been loved that it shapes us to love the world around us. So what would that look like in practice if we tried to train ourselves? Well, I'll stay with this training metaphor and say three things that I think it would involve. One is, and this is just the way training works, daily exercise. And by that I mean setting aside time for prayer, and considering God's word. I know this is the thing that, you know, every preacher always says, but the reason, there's a reason for that, and that's because it's true. It doesn't matter what this looks like. You know, for you, you might need to do it with other people, or you might want to do it by yourself. Maybe it's better if you are in this, like, little closet where there's no distraction, or maybe it's better for you when you're walking and doing dishes. It doesn't matter, but you need to be spending time in prayer and spending time hearing the gospel again in his word. And just as an example to try to, to show that this is key if we want to grow in love, you know, this fall I had a couple of men's groups that I was meeting with which were great. And what we were thinking through together is how do we, in our workplaces, extend the life-giving love of Christ, life-changing love of Christ? You know, and we were thinking through different things, about just the very job that we do and, and how we conduct ourselves towards others. And there was a number of different things. But you know what surprised me? Because I didn't expect us to keep coming back to this. But in both groups, again and again, I heard people say, you know, what I'm realizing more and more is that if I want to have this vision for, for serving Christ in my workplace, I need regularly to set some time to once again hear God's word and pray because... Otherwise, I get so locked in to the way other people view work. For me to be able to see this as an opportunity to love, I need to pull back and spend time with Christ. And that's true wherever you are. If you want to be someone who shows the love of Christ in your home or your workplace or in the neighborhood around you, you need first to be rooted in the fact that you are loved and that you are part of God's work of loving the world around you. You need to do daily exercise. Second, you and I need to avoid junk food. And when I'm talking about junk food, I'm talking about the way 
that we interact with the world around us. Here's a principle that I've heard that I find helpful, although it takes a lot of thinking to really tease out. Everything we have in this life that God has given us, everything we have in this world that God has given us, is designed to promote love. So when we experience good food or just being provided for, we're able to say God gave us these things, and as we enjoy them, we experience the love of God, and we give thanks, and then we're able to love God more deeply as we see just how much he loves us. And then also the things that we're given are given so that we can then use them to show love to others, to care for others, to be generous. The, the gifts that we're given in this world are meant to promote love. And here's the principle then I think that's helpful. When these things in this world that are meant to help us love hinder our love, then they've become unhealthy. They've become junk food. So, you know, the internet incredible blessing, things that we can thank God for, ways that we can use to kind of communicate. But when, when YouTube and Twitter and, and, and Netflix and everything like that so occupies our attention that we no longer have space for prayer and for contemplation and considering others, it has moved from a help to a hindrance, and it's junk food. Or wealth, and all of us have wealth in some fashion, either whether it's the, the goal of wealth or what we have, when it starts replacing where our confidence is so that our hope and our anticipation is based on what we will one day get and our, and our fear is based on what we might one day lose, then something that is meant as a help has become a hindrance for us, and it's junk food. Or the opportunities that we have. We are in a community with so many opportunities for our kids, for ourselves to get involved in music and sports and anything like that. They are good, but the moment that they crowd out our ability to gather as God's people, they've moved from a help to a hindrance, and they're junk food. And we need to cut out our junk food. Let me tell you, I think this is where us preachers have done congregations in America a disservice. Because what we generally emphasize is all the things that we should be adding. We should be adding prayer and time in God's word. We should be adding in terms of generosity to others, but we never acknowledge that to add something also means you need to cut something out. That to be generous, you need to be simple and spend less. That to be able to do things like prayer, spend time with God's people. You need to choose not to do other things. And you know why we don't want to say it? Because sacrifice is hard. And we don't like saying things that are hard. And so we have people who are hyper busy and hyper in debt. For us to become a people who love well, we need to look at our lives and be willing to let go of things that are in and of themselves good but are standing in the way of us drawing near to Christ and loving others. Otherwise, what we'll be doing is exercising in the morning and eating nachos and donuts and ice cream the rest of the day and be wondering why we're not getting fit. We need to cut out our junk food. And finally, for us to be pursuing growing in love together, we need to do this together. At least for me, an exercise, it's so much easier if I'm not doing it by myself. Now, that's optional when it comes to physical exercise, but it is crucial when it comes to spiritual exercise. Jesus says, you and I need each other. We cannot grow by ourselves. I need you, and you need me. 
And let me tell you, everything we are doing, I mean, hopefully, even when, we're t- when Brent was talking earlier, this is cluing us in, everything we are doing is designed towards this goal. When we gather on Sunday, it is so that we can see Jesus more clearly and that can renew us and help us to love. When we're in community groups, it's to help us to love. When we're in Bible studies or discipleship groups, it's to help us to love. It is to help us to just not only experience, but also extend the life-changing love of Jesus. That is why we are together. If you're wondering what our heartbeat is, that's it. For us to grow in love, we need to do this together. Let me ask you, are you willing to work with me, to to be training ourselves so that we might grow more and more in love? Because here's the thing, that's what you are. Whether you see it or not, if you are in Christ, you are a child of God, and you are gifted and loving. We're going to take some time to kind of pause before God and confess. And remember, what we're doing here, it's not... Dwelling in, oh, I am such a selfish person, because that's the lie. The reason we confess is to come back to who we are, to, to return to who we really are in Christ, to say, God, I've, I've done these things. I'm sorry. I want to be the person you've created me to be. Please bring me back to reality. So I invite you to spend just some time thinking about you know, this, this call to love, and then I will lead us. Actually, first I'll lead us in kind of a corporate prayer, and then we'll spend a little bit of time just kind of silently also confessing in response. So let's, let's confess our sins together where the print is bold, if you would please join me. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We have not laid down our lives for each other as Christ has laid down his life for us. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. Father, for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us. Renew us so that in deed and in truth we might show the love of Jesus to others, to the glory of your name. Amen. Friends, hear the good news of the gospel. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christian, you have confessed your sins. Know that through Christ you are forgiven. And by the power of the Spirit, you are being renewed. Thanks be to God.